This is Tommy Chong, man, and this is Wake and Bake with Captain Hooter. It's Captain Hooter. And at this point, I am still alive. And we are here for part two of our interview with Mark Emery. I have a feeling that Mark knows exactly what this feels like. Being out on a limb. All right, guys, you enjoy this interview. This is part two of our interview. And I will be back right after this. I think. Why is this helicopter coming to me? No, no, no. Hola, hola, everyone. Captain Hooter back again. Part two. Mark Emery. What is that? That's hip. Uh, that, that's peyote cookies. And, uh, you know, like six years ago, I used to buy stuff like this for $3,000 a pound to sell it in my shop in Toronto, right? And the retail price with tax was about $12 Canadian a gram. Well, the same wonderful, incredible stuff burns like a dream, gets you off, cuts through everything else too. Like I could smoke a whole bunch of others and I would notice this one, right? I really had fun for the last three days experimenting with it and getting high with it, but it's $700 Canadian a pound, right? And that means, you know, like there, there is probably four times too much pot in the marketplace <laughs> for a four times price reduction in a period of now high inflation, right? This incredible stuff. Um, you know, like you'd think that things of good quality would maintain their value in the marketplace, but cannabis has come down by approximately three and a half times in price in Canada. And that's not true everywhere. It was true in Oregon for a while, more so even. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, probably is true in America now with so many legal states and, and cannabis chains and what have you. I'm sure there's a lot of competition. I'm sure that the prices anywhere where it's really legal or genuinely grown uh, fanatically is going to see a tremendous price reduction. So is that, so, that, that cultivar that you're, that you're smoking right there, is that a, a broadleaf? Is that an indica strain, uh, indica dominant? Well, I did see uh, the room where it grows mm -hmm. and they are the monster nugs. Now they did also tell me that one room has gotten outstanding results compared to both the one I'm smoking, although it's amazing to smoke and it burns like a dream, but there, th this one room I went into of the same thing this time around was even bigger, thicker, like fist size colas, like, and a dense, like in a way. And there were only a few days from chop down. The pistols had all been withdrawn and were brown. Um, but but the smell was wonderfully like high fruity without the lemon. You know, the, when people usually say it's citrusy, it really means lemony. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? And and that's the limonene terpene there, uh, which I don't really prefer. You know, that's kind of almost like the commonest smell in pot, in my opinion, is that gassy, oily petroleum smell. Mm-hmm. That's the most common of all the smells. I remember doing an article on the eight different areas of smells that were over cannabis with over a hundred different uh Terp profiles that were distinct to the nose, like the woodies, piney, and uh, that sort of thing. And then the the petroleum, the gassy, the the petroly, the kind of you know, and then the acrid, the skunky, you know, the astringenty, right? Uh, and uh, the metallic, even mm-hmm. um, strangely enough, and uh, floral, and uh, and so on. <laughs> There's a couple more I've even forgot there. Fruity. Yeah, I, I just I just finished doing an interview with uh, Russ Hudson, who just wrote the uh, the big book of terps, and uh, he's a, a great cannabis researcher. And you know he focused on the top thirty five terps in cannabis and the top twelve flavonoids, and uh, talked about all the the uh, the you know the the synergy between them and how all of that works and it's truly amazing how all of this is advancing at such a quick pace and how important do you you believe it you know it's it's interesting that because we've been having this discussion with several different experts over the last couple of days and there's there was a couple of things that really stood out to me one of them is have you have you ever recently ever saw anybody walk into a bar and say I want the strongest alcohol you have. No, right. right? So it really is all about the nuances. It's all about the terpenes. It's all about the different flavonoids. It's all about the different essences that people like. And, but in cannabis, how many times do they walk into the cannabis wonderland and somebody walks in and says, I want the strongest bud that you've got or the strong, what's the strongest strain that you have in the house? That might be the commonest phrase of all, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, when so I when we were doing when we were doing retail and had two thousand customers a day, that was a good place to get feedback, right? Two thousand people buying pot in, in one day, and uh, that would be the the commonest thing. What's the best you've got? What's the strongest you've got? Now, mm-hmm. of course, we flavor that by saying, you know, what kind of high is it, and what's how, you know. But I will tell you this: I used to smoke something called cat piss i used oh, to yeah. smoke something called bat shit yeah you know when it get, gets down to it i don't care what it smells like what it looks like as long as it gets you off right right that's the only really important thing i've seen so much nicely manicured beautifully grown appearing bud that just doesn't get me off mm-hmm. just doesn't get me off but it's you know and they swear it's like good stuff it's normal and stuff but i would sure. have to say four out of five strains don't get me anywhere near as high as they should Mm-hmm. or they don't really make any impact on me whatsoever that I would recommend right right and yeah. and these aren't necessarily bad growers these you know so there, there's a lot of subtlety to cannabis true it probably depends a lot on tolerance but you know it always gets down to the grower yes the way it's done can ruin or make a strain that and that to me is far important now this science is handy for the people that want to bring out certain terpenes certain strains therefore certain smells certain flavonoids and you know you can enhance that by growing organically as opposed to uh with synthetic nutrients i think if you're using synthetic nutrients you're going to deprive yourself of the potential of some terpenes and flavonoids there um 
But you know what? It's, that's only if you believe it makes any difference. If you want lots of THC, pound those synthetic nutrients in there, mm-hmm. right? And do that because, you know, that's what's important to you. Um, you know, to me, I mean, and in, in our industry, typically yield is the most important thing, right? Yield and a reason for people to buy it. So it should mm-hmm. get you off. It should be, you know, good stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, those are very personal decisions, you know, and they change. I'm, I'm changing too. Like what gets me off, what turns me on. And I'm on a sunny day right now, but I've been bong hitting this daily. And now I'm attenuated to the fact that when the sun goes in, I'm cold. Yeah. Right. So, and that's probably the pot contributing to that too. Right. So yeah, anyway, it's, I'm, it's, it's hard to make, to make cannabis uh-huh. a science. Like we can, everything that breaks down in nature can be made into mathematics, can be made into formulas can be explained uh, by a number of delightful ways. But uh, on one hand, the real fun, the real importance of the whole plant has nothing to do with that. (laughs) Well, exactly. You know, it's funny because, again, we were just I was talking with Russ and we were talking about uh, judging uh, cannabis cups, for an example. And, you know, the fact that you have to you're in some cases you have to try, you know, 10 or 15 different cultivars at one time. And then, uh, and, then, 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 and you know what, I can say this, I've been <laughs> to like every cannabis cup in the world, and they're all not legit. And <laughs> they don't mean to be not legit. <laughs> but you know what, to test ca- cannabis and to put it into a competitive environment is just so it can't be done fairly, it can't be done accurately at all. <laughs> um, and, and, and wait, and many, many times I've, you know, it's been obviously, they're not even doing it right. But legitimately, you should probably smoke less than a quarter gram in a bong and and i'll even get to more of that a quarter gram in a bong and hit that and see how you feel for the next hour before you hit another quarter gram and and you never do anything twice you only do a quarter gram and you know you kind of do it around the clock now that's an artificial environment to put yourself in i will test one every hour mm-hmm. and it is nice to smoke some then party with a whole bunch of other people smoking it but by no means as anybody competent, and I've seen very meticulous people, but they're still rushing it. You're still getting the holdover of the previous two or three or four or five highs. You've got all that secondhand smoke in the air contributing to you getting contaminated. That's soluble, so it lingers over afterwards. Yeah, it's it's. You're gonna you you'll see. Uh, Russ wrote a really wonderful article about and and actually talked about very specific guidelines about if you're gonna really do a cup and if you're really gonna rate something like this, you know, th- yeah. this is really- Well, if you're gonna rate it, but it should all be grown by the same grower because that would be ah. a truly accurate thing. Give, a, give, a, give a, a reputedly great grower 20 separate cuttings mm-hmm. or 20 separate things. And then we, you know, because all things being equal, he will have spent the same amount of time with each strain. So the grower will be negated as a, a factor there. Then mm-hmm. we're just choosing the strain that got us the highest and the nicest way that I like, right. basically. That's you know, all we're saying. I got, I got off and I got off in a way that suits me with this strain, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of it's bullshit. Who cares how it looks or smells or anything like that? None of that stuff, you know, like unless, you get, unless the winner can, you know, when the winners are up and they give you a breakdown of the, the, the profile, the THC and the various other cannabinoids, that might be fun to hear from the winner or two or three, 
Sure. But, you know, again, or having or having some actual uh, some lab results, you know, that are showing all of that. Maybe when you're narrowing it down into the last finals, and so that way you have yeah. the lab results and you actually know. Well, but, then if you're, but if you're going to use lab results, why use humans? I mean, why smoke it at all? If well, the lab think, results are going to be determinate. Yeah. Well, I don't think they should be determinate. They should be at least available though, so you can see what the. What okay, that's that's fun, yeah. but. Yeah. But again. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, well, this... here's the thing. You know, the last cup that I did actually was the most legit, the one I liked the most, which was what the was Jack, it was the Jack Herrera Cup and it was in uh, Amsterdam. And we were sequestered, quote unquote, sequestered inside a uh, condo. All the judges were staying there. There was people that were brought in from all around the world. Um, I, I was able to interact with another uh, professional interpreter. Uh, Jonathan Hirsch was there from Canada. There was a lot of pros there. And everyone was taking their time and analyzing everything. I was in a separate room and I photographed every single sample. And, you know, I, I did most of my judging with my eyes because I, I, I know what I'm saying. And then I tested later. But I never, none of us were sitting there smoking anything on a continual basis. And we had, what, seven days, eight days in order to, to go through the samples. And everyone there was, was, you know, very knowledgeable. But it was the best one I've seen so far, you know, and uh, again. By the I way, who, what, was, what was determined to be the best strain? Uh, the, it was, uh, I, I don't remember. I've got photographs of them all. Yeah, I smoked too much. I don't remember which one it was the best one. I know that the best, I, I believe that the, the, the winner of the best, uh, of at least one of them came from Den Haag. There were some winners that came from uh, uh, Barcelona, uh, which were fantastic. And as a matter of fact, uh, all right. Al, Alto, Alto Jardine, I believe, is what the name of that. that I, always, I always find that the, they don't, the Spanish don't flush their weed because they're going to make hash out of it. And they're going to mm -hmm. smoke it with tobacco if they smoke it in a joint, right? So mm -hmm. um, I, I, I always give a leery, beautiful smelling, beautiful looking Spanish buds and coffee shops. But because everybody mixes it with tobacco, which is, uh, you know, an ignition right. system for for Yeah. Yeah, so that that was my criticism there, but that's my criticism in Europe generally is they mix tobacco with cannabis, yeah. and I you know their their taste buds are no longer sharp. Yeah, once you start you know doing what? tobacco, I think that what what one of the cool things for me being an interpreter now and having this interpreting network is that there's interpreters all around the world. So these are all guys that are all smoke pure, and they're all they're yeah. all searching and hunting out and using microscopes on everything, and and it's awesome. Um, microscopes I to... are fun. Oh God, I, if, without that microscope, I I don't even, I, I'll show you pictures sometime about the well, stuff you mean that I almost smoked. Right? You don't actually have a microscope, but. No, I have several. Uh, uh, the one that I use, uh, the one I use most of the time when I'm out buying buds is this. And we'll see if that, so that. Well, look at that. So where'd you acquire that? Uh, this I got this one in Germany, and it's got what, uh, it's a twenty-five to twenty-five magnification, probably, and up up to fifty. Um, this is enough for me to be able to see the trichome density on the outside of the bud because normally oh, yeah. they won't let me they won't let me break anything open, but I can get a really good peek with this thing. And uh, oh, I, good. Uh, when I was in Amsterdam or when I was in uh, Jamaica, you have to take a photograph for me 
through that lens so I can see what you see sometimes. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But then when I get home, I, then I go deep and then I'll, I'll, I'll throw the real microscopes in there and I'll get down to the, you know, the tri oh You know, one of the <laughs> things I was going to tell you, which was so interesting, and I just got through talking about this with Russ also, is that down in the bottom of Spain, down in Huelva, one of the shops I went to recently, it's called Dr. Green's. And on the descriptions of their buds for the first time, and I've never seen this before, they listed the amount of time that the buds had been cured. Well, and so they're, they're, they're using the, the, the amount of weeks, the amount of time that it has been cured. Like it said, uh, tequila sunrise, uh, sativa, uh, uh, lemon fragrance, uh, cured 16 weeks. Uh, this one I wonder was- if that's I wonder if that's too long. <laughs> it, well, you know, I, I thought that also. Um, one of the things that was interesting, though, is again, you certainly just color if you don't refrigerate it. Right. Well, I think these are these. They're, I mean, it'll go gold. Yeah. Well, uh, under the microscope, what I was finding was that I was getting in the trichome heads multiple colors. It was only a minuscule amount of, of amber or uh, amber trichome heads. Most of them though, had some sort of other types of colorful chemistry inside the trichome heads. So, uh, you know, I mean, there's a nice there's a nice photo essay for someone. What happens for, in the cure from week one to week 16, right? Like, how's the smell? Because for me, uh, once you've had something in a jar four weeks in glass jar, you're going to have a beautiful cure and a smell. Four to six weeks is ideal somewhere in there. And then you're going to have the, the, the resin heads are going to begin to change hue. Mm -hmm. And sure. uh, at, at three months, you begin to lose your green. And by six months, it'll be halfway to brown gold, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you can refrigerate it to stop that or freeze it. But I don't like to do that to pot, actually. I, I did that. I used to store it, but I found it, it did something that I'm, I can't identify, but it, it hurt it, you know, yeah. by freezing. There you go. I wanted to go back to the last show, and, oh. and I did a little more investigating on it because you intrigued me about a couple of different things. One of them, you were talking about while you were in prison and about the band you were in. And then I yeah. had a chance to look at the playlist of the, the songs that you were playing. And in order to have the playlist that you had, there had to be someone absolutely shredding on lead oh, no. guitar. And I, I did guys. some, yeah, okay. So one of them was a gentleman named Chap, right? Yeah, well, no, Chap oh. is the third guitarist. Okay. I had two lead, two guys who were uh, Chaps, Chaps and Everyman. He could play bass, rhythm guitar, lead guitar. He was excellent. He was our vocalist. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and uh, Robert Chappelle of Alabama. And uh, and then on lead guitar, there was Terry and uh, Don. And those guys were amazing. Eventually, we I, people were sending me music books. So I'd get all these music books for them. I remember that guy learned the lead guitar for Crazy Train in one day. It took me a month Fuck. to learn the bass on Crazy Train right but the thing is prisons are full of geniuses who get fucked up on alcohol drugs and or women yeah right they there's some awkwardness to them whereby they get themselves into very big trouble at a time of vulnerability when they're doing something stupid now in fairness to the whole they are criminals um they weren't like doing great things with their time you know like a lot of them were drug dealing a lot of them were hustling which you maybe shouldn't go to jail for i certainly don't think you should but it's not they were trying to game the system though the thing about you know people 
having sympathy for people who deal drugs to make money, uh, any kind of drug, um, is that, you know, that's not that honorable. So, you know, you can only have limited sympathy. Yes, you shouldn't go to jail, but, you know, you're gaming the system because if we didn't have prohibition, you wouldn't have been doing that because there'll be no money in it, basically, right. if all, all things being equal. Um, you know, if everything were legal, and I, I mean, Canada, even though there's a lot that's not legal that's being produced, it all goes into the marketplace. And people will see that, you know, if you don't have rules or regulations on drugs, they're all really cheap and yeah. they will all be they will all be made brilliantly. I mean, really, I mean, there's no need for all the tainted drugs to make great drugs doesn't cost a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, the, the other thing I was thinking about the other day was, you know, you, you went into prison as the Prince of Pot. Did that help you or hurt you more? Oh, no, that helped everywhere. Did it? I, like I, I, I had, you know, people who knew me in every prison. Plus, National Geographic and Discovery Channel both aired TV shows where I was the principal uh, person on that show uh, or in that show. And that, that raises your status a lot when you're on TV for not a bad crime. It doesn't raise your status. <laughs> if, you're, it, it, you know, if you're a murderer, you're on TV, that's not going to help you um, in prison. And, and certainly stealing and other things that would contribute to a, a bad prison reputation wouldn't affect you. And certainly being a, a sex criminal or any of that stuff doesn't. But being fighting the man on mm -hmm. principle they knew every, They knew about it right away. They all researched it. As soon as I got there, they would have their family research it. One of the things is Jody and I would be the only people who could draw attention to a prison. There'd be like a thousand, two thousand guys in a prison, but nobody cares what happens to any of them mm -hmm. until I got there. And then I would write about it every day, all the different things going on. And then suddenly people cared. Well, once the prisoners know that, you're held in very high esteem. Right. Right. Because they might need you one day. Like one day, my cellie had MRSA. I had MRSA in prison, too. It's a super bug you get and you get infections. Uh, they're not going to kill you unless they're near an organ. But nonetheless, that mm -hmm. penicillin doesn't work on people like that once you get that. So my my cellmate got it, but his leg swollen, swelled up like an elephant, all red and stuff. And basically because, you know, the, the doctor's gone for the day. It's Friday. So he'll be back on Tuesday because Monday's a holiday. Oh. And I thought, wow, four days for this? You could get gangrene in that time. So I told Jody, and Jody went and put it out there that people should call the prison. They got swamped, and three hours later, there were three doctors there in ambulance and ready to take them to the hospital. Damn. Right? And everybody said that. It's because you got people on the outside who care. Mm -hmm. If anybody on the outside calls, they'll pay attention. Damn. Right? But they're not going to pay attention to anybody in here. Now, that's mm. not true. Medical services and prisons are, are the most amazing places, really. They do more in, with less and in very quickly uh, all the time. They're always keeping prisoners healthy, immunizing them, and, uh, and fighting. I, I don't know why they do it. It's like way more work for no better pay, um, I would think. But I, I had a lot of admiration for uh, the medical staff at every prison I was at, including the ones I thought were terribly run. The medical yeah. staff, though, was heroic mm -hmm. in trying to keep everybody healthy. And they're dealing with a lot of immigrants, a lot of, you know, people uh, uh, crashing the border, a lot of people who've got compromised health. And, you know, they do what they can. Uh, I was impressed. <laughs> how is how is Jody doing? How's uh, Jody's joint? Uh, well, Jody uh, still runs cannabis culture in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they're, they're making the main floor a lounge. So all three floors are going to be lounges. 
and uh, you know, hopefully they'll be able to to stay there. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's a very turbulent environment for people. Um, <clears throat> she and I are going to have difficulty getting. I'll never be allowed to be in the legal industry, probably, unless something changes. But I, I got rejected for both owning a retail store in the legal industry and even managing one. I couldn't. They wow. did. They refused to give me a manager's license. That's like seven hundred and fifty bucks so right wrong. there. That's um, ridiculous. That's unrefundable. Oh well, yeah, yeah and that's because. They said I didn't tell them my complete criminal record. I, but ultimately, you supply your criminal record with your application. So, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, I have had, you know, 40 different prisons and jails to go to and 31 different convictions, yeah. of which sometimes have multiple. Tri- you know, I, I cannot offhand recall mm. every single one of them, right? And then there were, tra- <laughs> there, and then there, there were raids when there were no charges. <laughs> there were charges that were dropped, many. So, I, I believe you literally had a summer of disobedience, didn't you? <laughs> that was the summer of legalization, oh, which okay. is an interesting way to interpret that as yeah. a summer of disobedience. It was a dis, it was disobedient in the areas that were still enforcing the prohibition. Ah. See, in 2001, the Court of Appeal in Ontario said if they don't come back with a better medical marijuana regime in the next year, then cannabis possession is no longer a crime. Well, they didn't come back with one. So somebody began to assert, a lawyer, that, Your Honor, I don't think there's any marijuana law in, in place right now because, and then he would read the Court of Appeal um, in, uh, it was, what, it was Ontario or Prince Edward Island or Nova Scotia or there's British, you know, so it was Ontario. Anyway, uh, that's a province of this country and a big one. So the Court of Appeal says, You've got to come up with something good medical for these people because they're suffering and it's too ridiculous to make them go out on the street and buy it. So the government doesn't come back with anything, right? And so a lawyer, when he has a client who's been charged with, as thousands and thousands were every month, charged with possession, one lawyer finally made the argument that there is really no law anymore because they've struck. And then the judge right, and goes, let's confirm that, got the law. Yep, you're right. There is no law. Wow. So suddenly... And then three other jurisdictions also strike it down for the same reason. So, but the other six provinces don't. So I'm thinking I'm going to go across Canada and smoke a big chonger, like a one ounce chonger <laughs> in front of a police station or, or, or a suitable bonger pipe. When I say suitable, for example, when I smoked out Halifax, I got a, a seahorse fish pipe. Okay. And uh, so it's kind of like that. Like in St. John's, Newfoundland, I had the local hockey team hat on. I had a bong that had St. John's on it. This sort of thing, right? Or in the case of Ontario, I just, because Ontario had started out saying that, I kind of knew I wouldn't get charged in Ontario, but there's, you know, I did every major city across Canada. So that's like about eight places in Ontario, maybe six, seven. And we had a one ounce joint and that's like 12 wow. inches long. And it's really uncomfortable actually, because it gets incredibly hot. Like it just sears your look because it's like that thick like a cigar. But the great thing is you can pass it around or hold it and everybody will get a hit of it. And these were momentous times. Everywhere I went, we had hundreds and hundreds of people. And when we weren't arrested, we had a simultaneous smoke out party on the police property. Because remember, it's in front of the police department. So when people realize we're not going to get arrested having a pot festival in front of the police station, wow. God. Those were the best days. <laughs> <laughs> However, in uh, Calgary or Edmonton, 
and Regina and Saskatoon and Winnipeg and Moncton, New Brunswick, uh, they were not having festivals and parties. Mm -hmm. They arrested me and put mm -hmm. me in jail. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a couple of cases, kept me overnight. And in a couple of cases, wanted to deny me bail. And for a good reason, too, because typically bail is supposed to be, you, you give them either your own recognizance, I promise I won't do it, or you put up some money or something, which can be forfeit if you violate your bail. And the point of bail is so you don't go and reoffend. Now, after my first arrest in Winnipeg and put in jail overnight and brought before the judge in leg irons and handcuffs over, <laughs> I believe it would have been like a quarter gram of pot, um, they, the Crown attorney got up and said, uh, Your Honor, he's going to do it again. He's got a schedule, which was true. Mm -hmm. He said, and the purpose of bail, Your Honor, is to not let him reoffend if that is his intention. Right now, if you think of bank robbers, if you rob a bank and somehow they give you bail, the first rule of thumb is you cannot rob more banks, you'd think, right? And then that or your bail will be revoked and then you won't qualify for bail in the future. That's what would happen in Canada. Um, but none of the provinces wanted to pay to have somebody ex extradite me back to, for violating bail. So I eventually did the whole country and I did six times in jail. And uh, eventually, and unfortunately, I had to spend money to go to courts, but eventually they were all dropped as the Court of Appeal later did rule, yes, pot was legal, but now we recriminalized it. And I didn't even think they could do that. They literally said a law was no longer in effect. And then, so it's null and void. And that was true for two and a half years. And then they literally resurrected when they determined that the government has lived up to its obligation to come up with an adequate medical marijuana regulation, right? And I'm thinking, Courts can't bring to life things they've already, you know, said are null and void. Not the same court, but that's what happened. So then we got prohibition back again in October 2003. So theoretically, there was no cannabis law from uh, September 2001 to uh, October 2003. And that's what, you know, I was drawing attention to. Wow. And wow. it's in a movie, too. It's in a movie called Escape to Canada where uh, uh, the two Michaels who made same-sex marriage legal and myself share that film as to cool thing. This was when Canada was kind of considered cool, right? This was in the Paul Martin, John Chrétien period. Um, and Canada had a lot of fiscal sanity back in those days. And those might've been considered good times actually, when I think of it, 2002. So um, I was gonna ask you about the song. When I was in uh, living in Canada, there was a uh, artist there uh, named Ko, and he recorded a song that is basically your theme song. It's called Seed Man, and it's on your playlist on uh, Spotify. Do you remember the song? And do you love that song as much as uh, I do? I'll tell you. There's actually 27 songs that I know of written about me really? in a ballad form. Oh yeah. Hip hop songs, ballady songs, folk songs, bluegrass songs, especially uh, a few hard metal songs. And uh, the Tall Brothers Prince of Pot song that was used in the movie, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm a blessed guy. I've got tons of, you know, if you look up a song about Mark Emery or something, there's a ton of them out there. Probably even some obscene ones I don't know about, but but certainly a lot of ones that are very uh, flattering and kind and clever and make great music. I remember one fellow 
wrote a song about me and gave me the royalties for five years. Um, and that was like $70, $80 a year. <laughs> Whoa, that's not so bad. That, yeah. So um, out of there is there's a lot of people that you could call cannabis uh, patriots. Um, and I was thinking of uh, people like Steve D'Angelo and uh, uh, Mark Boris St. Maurice, uh, Jack Herrera. Um, do you, did you interact with any of these people? Do you have any kind of, any of them? Oh, I knew all of them. Yeah. Um, Jack's story is, is, is fun. I had Jack come and visit me when I first started my crusade. Because in 19, when I started back in 1991, all books about cannabis were illegal in Canada, right? <laughs> this, I had a radio show and I, I used to love playing a guy named Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. Um, and his spoken word material was really great. I, uh, I Blow Minds for a Living was the double CD set that came out in 1988. And uh, he also had, uh, you know, uh, he went to trial over the Giger cover on his Frankenchrist album, uh, The Dead Case. So anyway, he was a very interesting fellow. I brought him to Centennial Hall in London. We sold out 400 seats, which was great. That covered the cost. He cost me about $3,000 US way back then, 33 years ago. And uh, he uh, had part of his act called Grow More Pot. And he pointed out, I don't smoke pot. He's kind of fuddy-duddy like that. Um, I don't smoke pot, but uh, the history of hemp has been hidden from Americans. And he went off and I go, wow, this is fascinating. Like, and I didn't expect it. And uh, he said, it's all in this book you've got to read called The Emperor Where it Has No Clothes. And I'm going, okay, great. I'm go get it. So I tried to get it. And no stores in, in Ontario, London had it. And I said, why is that? And then the guy said, well, I'll try and get it for you. And then he called me back. He said, Mark, that book's illegal in Canada. And I'm going, what? First of all, I didn't think there were any books that were illegal, except, you know, some vague neo-Nazi kind of anti-Semitic writing were kind of illegal. But basically, you know, I'd never heard of just ordinary writings that were banned in Canada, right? And you grow up thinking that that's not even possible. So, but it was possible because in 1985, Parliament passed this section 462.2 of the Criminal Code that banned all books and magazines and videos in the, uh, that uh, in any way promoted, glamorized, discussed uh, cannabis or any drug for that matter, but it, can, cannabis was included, right? So what happened is that got taken off the stands that Canada had one grow book at the time called grow your own stone and they raided the publisher they raided the publisher blackberry books and seized all 5,000 copies of grow your own stone and high times was uh, seized at the border so as soon as it was seized once the distributors stopped bringing it um cable news right stopped bringing it to Canada so there was a, a five six year period that Canadians didn't get any high times 1987 to 1991 but then I started selling them and piles of them too and even wholesaling them out and essentially that's how I even got my start in Vancouver going door to door selling banned books and magazines <laughs> and then a big court in 1994 in a very interesting way um, we struck that law down 
that's why you can bring books and magazines and all that in Canada now. Um, in Toronto, an uh, undercover uh, a police woman who's about age 21 was sent into a high school and her mission was to buy weed. So she basically asked every high school senior um, if they could get cannabis. <laughs> And later, 52 charges are laid against 52 boys who all agree to get her cannabis. Now, it's a terribly unfair thing to do because a 21-year-old amongst a bunch of 15, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds is going to get whatever she wants. So she says, <laughs> can you get weed? You're going to say yes. I, and most of them didn't even know anybody that, you know, but they would go look for her, right? So they started all looking for weed. Now, it's funny that none of those kids... <laughs> ran into other kids saying who are you looking for i'm looking for that uh, hot new woman that's in class here right and yeah woman kind of like you know a little far along isn't she like <laughs> to be here asking for weed anyway uh, parents were really upset we went out and gave a pamphlet out to the students coming out of the school reminding them of their rights saying that they should oppose this and the school principal called the police and had us arrested <laughs> wow <laughs> Arrested for just because we were disseminating pro marijuana literature, right? But this was the perfect way to get charged because it's one thing to say, you know, I have a right to um, sell a book that tells people how to grow something that's illegal. You know, you and I would say great, but you know, that's so, but to give out a pamphlet to students about affirming their rights when an undercover police agent and then the principal calls the police in that very, you know, that same police department that sent the undercover now arrests us for telling people how to go about dealing with this, right? Mm -hmm. So amazingly, the Crown did not drop the charge. It was really strange. Like this is such an outrageously stupid thing. And in fact, it just took one day in court. The judge said, no, there can be no law that, that rest, has people arrested for giving a pamphlet out on the street. This is can't. So this law is null and void. So when you look in the Canadian Criminal Code, it, it sees this one. Uh, Judge J. Ellen, uh, Ellen McDonald mm -hmm. in the uh, Superior Court, 1995. Um, and so that, that law is still on the books. It's still illegal and included bongs too. But the part I got suspended was the literature and communication provision, like videos, um, books, magazines, any kind of communication was now legal um, and permitted. But bongs were still illegal and we would get arrested many times uh, for the bongs provision in section 462.2. I mean, I've been arrested for lots of stuff. Mm. Given hash away. Yeah, you know, like, wow. You, selling you, weed. You, selling, you fought the power. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're going to lose if you fight the power. What you've got to do is change public perception because uh, social change and change on the ground, if not in law, happens when people's perceptions change in a large way, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's how things become accepted. And then laws will follow that philosophy. But laws aren't a leader and thinker, right? And also, legalizing cannabis has one great risk, is that legalization means government regulates it. And that's a highly corrupt process. And it puts, it puts your industry or something you love in the hands of a government bureaucrat and regulatory agencies. And if I know anything, I know that's just going to kill all the fun. Uh, it's going to kill all the, the real love yeah. that goes into it. Because when you have everybody working in bright lights and white suits in a grow you know, factory as long as a football field, that's not fun. There's no yeah. fun there. 
You know, I was gonna I was gonna ask you, you've been all around the world, you've seen you've seen thousands of different grows. Who's the best grower you've ever seen? What's the best grow you've ever seen? Or and I'm gonna go here. What's what's one tip that you would take from any of these guys if you're gonna share it for, with growers, you know, that are coming up? One great tip that they absolutely, you know, they, they probably wouldn't know, you know, it's one of those secret mark every tips. Awesome. That will be controversial, but I have seen 600 grows. Now, of course, that goes as far back as 1995. So, you know, and I would say I saw an awful lot more outdoor grows uh, in Canada in the 90s than you would see today. Uh, everybody can grow cannabis. It's not that odd anymore anyway. Uh, and they tend to grow them huge. A lot of Canadians do grow just four, but they're giant trees. That's a new phenomenon. <laughs> In the old days, we would have a field of smaller plants, uh, hopefully near a clear cut or some kind of like way to be concealed, you know, and you, you always have to grow in, in arcs or or chaos because only in, in nature there are no straight lines and in the old days in the 70s 80s and 90s they used to have helicopters and anything that was straight meant there were humans there and they would go looking for weeds so you had to learn to grow in chaos no mm. no straight line um but you know i certainly see a lot of outdoor uh, growing in uh, uruguay for the clubs uh, in colombia because everybody can grow 20 plants so you certainly see giant you know orchards of 20 tree like they're tree like you know they, a lot of people australians used to love growing that way um but it's certainly common in colombia too and uruguay they're, they're tree sized <laughs> mm -hmm. um where were we going with this? Is, is there is there one grower that would prove? Ah. I mean, um, the Picasso. Yeah, but they come and go. You know that that, that they don't have that moment that lasts forever, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when I encounter someone and they're at their peak, yeah. right? Like I had a guy. I will say I I don't know his real name. I, I, or even if he's alive now, but his name was Pat Walsh, I think. Mm -hmm. And from, uh, I think, Green, somewhere in British Columbia that started with Green, a little small community, you know, in, near Penticton or somewhere in there. But uh, what we did for the Toker's Bowl, which we had uh, for four years, and it worked out really great for three of them, is I would give him 25 strains of seeds I sold Mm. Like Deed Shore and uh, Greenhouse and Sensi Seed. And I'd give him all 25 strains, uh, like months and months and months in advance. And he'd grow them all out and he'd charge me. Mm. He'd grow them all. He'd charge me. And, and basically, that's what I was buying to give out to people at Toker's Bowl. And essentially, he would deliver me, I think it was probably... 25 different kinds, uh, six ounces of each, essentially six ounces of each. Mm -hmm. And I would pay him the premium price to grow those out. But what I wanted was somebody who would grow them out identically so I could assess the true nature of the value of those seeds with a lot of other people um, in a fairly objective manner, meaning the grower would have no influence over it, right? Because a great grower will make everything better and a mediocre grower will ruin it. So you can't judge a strain based on uh, a several growers entering a contest, right, to determine the best strain. Mm -hmm. 
what you've determined perhaps is the best grower of what was submitted. But, you know, I wanted to know what my strains were really like. So this one guy, he was a wonderful grower and the smells were incredible. And they were bone dry, like in a great way. So they burned like a dream. They were, well, it was all organic. So it didn't require a lot of flushing. It was really just nice stuff. And so I would say, Pat Walsh, wherever you are in Greenwood, <laughs> British Columbia, uh, Greenwood, British Columbia, you were amazing. Um, now, by the fourth year, because he was using cuttings, I think uh, the strains became undone. And they lacked a lot of the, the vibrance and flavor and vitality of the previous three seasons, 2002, 2003, 2004 were just amazing years um, for all, you know, each stream was just so heavenly. You know, you were the Prince of Pot. You, you had some peak years that were just at, you were at the, at the top of the mountain. What was the best party that you went to? What was the, what was the best of the best? Oh, they would be one of mine. Oh boy, we had some incredible parties, but I would say the best party really was when Chris Bennett and Renee Beauchet got married, just down the road actually, at the Roberts Creek Community Center, I think probably the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And we rolled 3,000 joints <laughs> um, for what turned out to be about 300 people. <laughs> and there were like so many different strengths. It was like you could just grab a joint that would have this on it and it was just staggering amounts in fact i don't believe it was all smoked i think there was probably a thousand joints that were left over um but it wow. turned out to be gorgeous weather it was in summer uh, july and it was a lot of fun and uh yeah people from all over came and it was just the best time the sunshine coast is a lovely time but those things kind of went on back in that period too. Um, there's a lot to love about Vancouver and British Columbia from like the 1970s to the early 2000s. Um, once everything like our industry becomes a business and everything has to be quantified in its profitability and stuff. And, you know, and we were all unified by breaking the law, being rebels. And it, that draws a lot of people together. Mm -hmm. And money hasn't seen a way to draw people apart. Now, money's always been involved in cannabis. Don't get me wrong. In fact, more money in the the legacy market than there is now in the in the same market, right? Mm -hmm. Like we were just talking earlier, this pot I would have bought for three thousand dollars a pound probably and sold in my store at twelve dollars a gram in 2016, 2017. So amazing. Um, right. And now it's $700 a pound right yeah. and and so that's like a, a near four times reduction and that's very common it's so common um and and i don't think you know we've added a lot of new you know smokers in that time or consumers you know? do, you, do you think there's a vintage in weed like uh, we were just talking a little while ago about bc bud and we were talking about the 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 90s you know late 90s early 2000s would have been you know like the the proper year for the Chateau Lafitte. Uh, what, would, what would you say that there was a peak period there? Well, yes. Well, let's say there was a golden age in the sense, and that's the 80s and the 90s. Because until 9-11, it was easy to smuggle weed over the border. Yeah, you could put a big hockey bag on top of a snowmobile and you could drive in, throw the snowmobile, the guy would throw you money and you'd be back over the border. Mm -hmm. And like, 
30 minutes who's gonna you you can't interdict someone in that time mm. under normal circumstances so in the 90s british in the 80s and 90s british columbia produced huge amounts of outdoor cannabis and that lends a magical air to the way cannabis is thought of right outdoor harvest festivals you know dealing with smugglers and helicopters and thieves <laughs> and moles <laughs> and you know at the same time you can have like full moon mushroom nights you know it's that kind of culture in british columbia around nelson and the sunshine coast where so you know um yeah. there was a lot of business though going yeah. on over and then bang after 9 11 wow did that ever change immediately yeah. they start all cameras along every stretch of it heat detectors um you know they've probably got better satellite surveillance i mean the whole thing that and it just ended overnight it just ended overnight mm -hmm. people got caught mm -hmm. um so people were getting caught in the year 2002 and it just died and then you know america made up for their shortage <laughs> they grew their own way they grew their way <laughs> that problem so, so consequently uh, pot stopped going to the united states about 20 years ago and, and has never picked up yeah. i mean america yeah. i mean same with mexico mexico started growing poppies because the u.s is growing all their own weed <laughs> right they don't need Mexicans growing their weed and going to all the trouble to smuggle it and, you know they moved into they tried to get into poppies as a way of just diversifying into something where there was still demand and then fentanyl killed that Fentanyls hurt the poppy growers of the world. I wrote, I put something on the uh, uh, beginning of our uh, our show today. Of uh, you know, I, I like to play the the games on the Oculus, and uh, I'll pick a different game for uh, a different guest. And on our first episode, I played a game called the Climb, where we were climbing up up this mountain and uh, symbolizing your climb in the industry. The one today that I have on is called the plank. And it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a plank that goes out and you're, and you're up uh, uh, 25 stories uh, hovering over the top uh, of, a, of the city while helicopters are coming at you. And, and, and I, I thought about that and I thought about you and, and all the turbulence that you went through during that time frame. Did it feel like you were ever walking on a plank? Like you were you were out there by your by yourself for a while. Let me tell you about the moment I got arrested, right? Because it was an odd thing. I was out in uh, Nova Scotia to give a speech to the Maritimers United for medical marijuana. I remember, Mum, and uh, just before that, I thought I'd go into town and get lunch. And uh, I remember I got a rental car, and I parked it in front of the restaurant, and I went in, and the place was packed when I went in. And strangely enough, over the next 10 or 15 minutes the place seemed to have cleared out <laughs> like oh. instantly weird and uh so when the woman came to me and said what would you like to eat i said this is this and she said can i just give you this and i i gave her some custom kind of recommendations for how and she seemed irritated by this right hmm. now i know that you know she was told to get rid of everybody <laughs> and just leave me in there so she was nervous and irritated and it's because she probably thought i was like bonnie and clyde because when i walk out of that front door and go to my vehicle five cars roar right behind me to trap me up against it and you know, guys in kevlar jump out eight of the big guys right of all different racial and ethnic and sexes and uh which is common when i get rated as i send one ever everybody and uh but 
flak jackets on, like, and, mm-hmm. and they go, they go, Mr. Emery, yes. I say, yes. And they, you're under arrest. And then they hand me the warrant. Uh, this one's different than any other warrant. This one says for extradition to the United States, mm-hmm. right? And this is DEA as well as RCMP. In fact, DEA and RCMP uh, follow me, uh, caught me all the way back to Vancouver. DEA begins to pay a lot of attention. I mean, they have been for years, but uh, to make sure I don't escape extradition. Right. But anyway, so- uh, Quick side happened. question, quick side question. Would Justin yeah. Trudeau, real quick, would Justin Trudeau let you get extradited? Do you think? Oh. And today, well, it would have to be a, what what what's going on would have to be a crime in both countries, and so it, it isn't. So um, now, federally, producing marijuana without a license—you know—if you were to do that and smuggle it to the U.S., so that's still going to get you into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't happen anymore because there's no economic incentive, right? There's right. a ton of weed in Canada, and uh, what what we're going to see is just people getting out of the business and slowly but surely that surplus having to be absorbed right uh, eventually these low prices because the market the price will just keep dropping and people will smoke more <laughs> or do stuff with it right or make mm-hmm. extracts you know medicine we should be making more cancer things you know what i'm having a hard time finding is i'm looking for two gram plastic molds to, to make suppositories mm-hmm. um for cancer cures and what have you mm-hmm. and you know when i got trained to do this in slovenia by a great guy there um you know i took it for granted that these molds would be easy to find right because what you do is you uh you get cocoa butter and uh you mix that proportionally to your full spectrum cannabis oil and then you extract it with into a shrins a food grade shrins and then you fill molds right you know kind of break and you can put two grams in each mold then you put it in the fridge and then they harvest and they can be brought outside and, you know, they don't melt unless you put it inside your body. Right. And they're suppositories. They're medical suppositories. Yeah. Right. And I just thought finding a suppository molds would be easy, but it's not. I've had so much. Now, basically any two gram kind of plasticky thing would be great. Like, like, you know, it could be for anything, I suppose, but it just seemed to me, and these were molds and you just, oh, get them at any pharmacy. Right. But I've gone to pharmacies and nobody seems to have there's not much do-it-yourself pharmacy going on, mm-hmm. I guess, and people with gel caps for a lot well, of homemade. Right? I have I happen to know a lady who uh, owns multiple dispensaries in Las Vegas, and uh, she has uh, been working with a lot of cancer patients, and she taught me uh, uh, <laughs> the the difference between recreational suppositories and medicinal suppositories. And well, here's the. Th- if you have a medicinal need, you won't get high. Yeah. Well, there you go. Exactly. But anyway, the, the... I found that I got more knocked out from a uh, 200 milligrams suppository than almost anything I've ever done. Um, really? Now, for a cure, yeah, and you have to take up to a gram a day mm-hmm. uh, for 65 days in a cancer cure. And that's, uh, you know, a third of a gram three times morning, afternoon, and evening. But you work your way up to that from 100 milligrams. And then 200 milligrams, three, and then, you know, until you're doing one gram a mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And because uh, this is like the THC is meant to overwhelm any infection or any cancer. Yeah. Um, uh, under the theory that THC attacks cancer, then you literally overwhelm your body. Yeah. And yeah. That, it's, it's an you know, amazing it, medicine. Well, 
if it works. Now, I, I, I found that here's what happened in the, in the, when we go, went over our results in Slovenia, the guy keeps track of everybody and everything, what happens. In two years, 13 people died out of the 200 people in this, in the, you know, 14 people showed no sign of cancer whatsoever, right? And most everybody's lives, uh, the rest were still alive and their lives had improved. Okay, so that's a overall pretty good. Yeah, we lost 13, 14 no longer have cancer, but the rest are doing better, okay? And you might want to give the THC because we never know what cures anybody. No, and we can't never ever know that because not all bodies respond the same to any right. kind of thing or thing, right? Just like no disease affects anybody the same way, right? Um, there are commonalities and there are things we can learn, but when we say that cured me or I got better because, no, you think you did. And then, you know, and some things are more believable than others, right? But, uh, and my point here was, we don't know if cannabis can cure cancer for you or me or anybody, but it's worth trying because studies seem to indicate that that could be helpful and that could do some serious good without any corresponding harm. Because the thing about suppositories is you can't get sick. You can't overdose. You don't, uh, I was, you know, I was pretty laid out flat, but I felt fine. Um, and I didn't feel nauseous and I didn't feel like, you know, and so that's what he found too, with all these patients, none of them got like overdose. None of them got sick um, too much. And, you know, you're talking one, gram of pure oil a day that's all it's huge amounts right. so it's important you don't get sick because you can't have them stopping the program you know uh dana larson opened up that storefront that's selling uh, uh dried magic mushrooms now and I, and it yeah. seems to be He's up and running something called just coca it's yeah. a, a zoom uh, seminar mm -hmm. uh, for anyone in the world i think may uh or june it's coming up or even july but it's by it's i guess all these experts around the world on coca and how that can be a useful thing in people's lives. And uh, yeah, and the Coca Leaf Cafe, Dana's project, is the primary sponsor of that. So it's cool. Dana's moving off into new areas, right? Do you see that expanding? Do you see that going all the way across Canada? Well, I see that there's potential for, for some drug therapeutics that are plant-based. Um, we could use ibogaine clinics all over Canada. The only problem is that uh, although you can get ibogaine hydrochloride made synthetically, it's still very difficult and expensive to obtain. It's actually neither legal nor illegal. It it's an unregulated substance. So it's hard to get much of it. And what there is is expensive. But I'd say that you know every major city should have a, a, a clinic where if people want to uh, free themselves from addiction, and I, that, that's a a dicey subject because most people addicted don't really want to quit. They, <laughs> they want to stop being inconvenienced by prohibition or their family who want them to quit. Right. So in exactly. other words, people who want to quit can, they just chain themselves to a radiator and stay away or stay away from drugs. Right. But the fact is their love for the drug is strong. What do you, do you remember when, when, do you remember when ecstasy first came out? And, and I believe in the very beginning, it was it was legal, wasn't it, for like a period of time? Well, yes, um, in the same way that uh, LSD once was legal. And then Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey having massive uh, dose party <laughs> brought it to the of the media. And that was the problem. Whenever something became made in the mainstream media, it usually got criminalized. And that's certainly what happened to LSD. Because from 1943... Uh, to 1965, it was an unregulated substance, right? 
So you could, uh, a lot of famous, very conservative people took LSD, like Henry Luce, who owned Time and Life magazine, uh, the K Kennedy, Jack Kennedy had done it. Um, so had Robert. Um, and because it wasn't illegal, there was no compromise they were making, right? And the CIA had tons of it because they were working with uh, uh, Albert in, uh, in Switzerland to make it for their MK Ultra program that started in the 50s, right? Mm -hmm. So there's lots of LSD being made. And, but then once it's in Time and Life magazine and what have you, it becomes criminalized. So MDMA, same situation. Back in those days, they just would say a certain uh, drug is illegal. Now they have all the analogs and everything because MDMA wasn't a, a scheduled substance. Um, having just come on the scene, courtesy of Alexander Shulgin, possibly. Certainly he has the textbook on it, mm -hmm. uh, on all the variations. What and, was his uh, name? I'm sorry. Alexander Shulgin, he wrote a book called PKL, Phenylethylamines I Have Known and Loved, and TKL, which is Tryptamines I Have Known and Loved. Oh. And those are formula books on how to make every single one of those drugs. They're very famous. Uh, they're all tested. He tested every one of them. Uh, he's the most famous person, I think, of all time <clears throat> um, to develop so many uh, variations on MDA, MDMA, um, tryptamines, and psychedelics, basically. Awesome. and died about five years ago i think because he's oh. succeeded by wife, and she in herself is also an author and they did a lot of their work together uh neat couple alexander shulgin and uh so um mdma was legal for about three to six years and then uh <laughs> he meant well but then uh the wonderful fellow in charge of maps what's his name i've forgotten it's my old age here um yeah rob uh, rick doblin okay so rick doblin goes to congress and says you should legalize this because it's amazing and you should make it like you know everywhere <laughs> he's very evangelical about it i, I meet him in uh, 1994 when he, he wants to bring me on board his crusade of which you know i'm down with um and he had a real fire in his eye. He's fun, Rick Doblin. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he's been a, a MDMA uh, evangelist for about 40 years. Now. And he's got it to the point where, you know, it might be on the threshold. See, the problem with MDMA, though, it's just too much fun. Like, it's just, <laughs> if, they, if they legalize that, people are going to rightly conclude that, no, fuck this, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I always found uh, all my MDMAs were wonderful. But, you know, you start putting it around almost stranger going, I love you, man. Right. It's okay. so like a throw. Yeah. Okay. So, so now you just reminded me of something else. Yeah. Because I remember we were talking about this. You, you, you were banned from uh, America. You were banned from Russia and you were banned from the Empress Hotel in, in the, in the beautiful saintly city of Victoria, BC in, in, in their, their haven, the most beautiful hotel. Can you now, tell the story? How the hell did you get banned out of there? You'd think the one about, uh, how did I get banned from Russia? Uh, no. <laughs> on, on, the, on the latest list of, look, with the prime minister and the finance minister and the minister of war, there's me there. And uh, <laughs> who, who saw that? Because, yeah, I, I made a joke tweet about no longer smoking AK-47 or black Russian or white Russian. And I looked up all I looked all the names of spot that had Russian in them and put them in a tweet. But anyway, 
okay, and I abandoned the USA for, for all those seeds. Banned in China simply because I'm a criminal. Banned in Australia because anyone who's done over a, a year in prison has to get a special visa, which I, I don't qualify for. So no Australia for me. And I can't even get on a plane in Canada. So I'm kind of banned in Canada too. So you, the only place in the top six countries in the world I am allowed to move around would be Brazil, but I'd have to get there. Um, but anyway, so um, the question was, however, <laughs> I'm banned from the the empress well that the woman i was with at the time and this goes back 20 21 years uh when i was a cheekier person <laughs> and this woman liked dmt and i've never really done dmt recreationally i used to dose people um at special sessions with the caveat that this is a very intense experience and that Everybody in the room had to be dead silent. I didn't, I didn't like even any street noise coming in because it, it will influence the experience, which only mm -hmm. lasts about 48 minutes typically. Mm -hmm. um, it's over, but it's the most amazing experience, right? Because mm -hmm. you're seeing things, even when you open your eyes, that you know can't really be happening, but they're really pretty amazing. And then, of course, it does wear off, and then you go, wow. And it, so it's a very quick thing, but it's a very profound thing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the problem with DMT, though, <laughs> there isn't a problem with the experience. I, I, I got pretty experienced in helping people have a great trip, but it smells terrible. And it doesn't matter if it's organic DMT, because uh, it has to be dried and crystalline form in any case. But so whether it's organic DMT or synthetic DMT, it smells like burned plastic when it's ignited. And it's, it's, it's a horrible reek. It turns into a, a liquid really fast and you have to keep applying flame to it uh, in a kind of a sneaky way <coughs> without like burning it too much and destroying it. So it eventually creates huge amounts of smoke from very little like drop, you know, droppings of a crystalline powder. And it reeks like nobody's business. It went into the hallway. Security came by and just said, whatever you're doing, you're going to you're going to stop because you're out of here. Right, didn't know, know nothing. You are, I don't know. They determined that that smell came from our room. Whatever we were doing was not permitted. And right? so now you're starting to come on to the DMT and you're being escorted out of the hotel at the same time. DMT experience was probably over, or maybe I don't even know if we, yeah, it was probably over. Mm -hmm. Thing is, Marcy, like a lot of people who are who like a drug, will like it too much, mm -hmm. and uh. So she probably didn't stop at just a one hit, which would enough enough make a reek, right? I'm surprised that any of the uh, the security guards would know what the smell of DMT was. Well, they probably didn't. They just hot reeks, right? But I like that smell. But even I will admit that the the burning plastic smell from DMT has always struck me as one of the most obnoxious smells that you'd ever smell. It's very odd. And all, and it doesn't matter if it's organic or synthetic, it's the same thing. Um, like, so that always made me go, it doesn't, it smells so synthetic, but it would always happen organic, like from plant, like acacia tree bark. Uh, you can make DMT from that, uh, Phalaris grasses. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually uh, a living plant material on every continent where you can process that into DMT quite easily. Russ and I were talking about, you know, getting used to one cultivar. Like, let's say you're smoking what you're smoking. You smoke that for a week. 
And then you can't get any more, but you get the same thing again for another week. But you had some, some other swag that you had from a couple of weeks ago that you weren't that thrilled with, but then you go back to it after you haven't smoked it for a while and you have a better effect, a higher effect. Do you, can you explain that kind of, cause that happens with a lot of people. Well, I'll give you the only real example you need to know. When's the strongest hit of the day in the morning when you've gone 12 hours without smoking, right? Your first hit or even the afternoon, whatever your first hit that day is, if you put it in a bong and take it, it's going to be the most profound because it's all new to your body. Bing, 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 bing. It's all those receptors for the first time. Anything after that for the rest of that day is just sprinkling more on top of those already stimulated receptors. Mm -hmm. So you're developing a tolerance even with after the first real hit. That's true with cocaine and a lot of other things, but it's not problematic with can cannabis. It's just that that's always going to be your best hit. And until you, if you smoke a larger volume at the same time, like if you double the size of your bong hit, which could be unpleasant, really, all that smoke, you cough and what have you. But to me, the best, you know, and even I make mis mistakes at a habit by putting too much in the bowl. I should just put smaller amounts in the bowl. It'll be more pleasant experience. It'll I'll go farther with the weed um, and I won't cough as much, right? Do you take tolerance breaks? No. But there are times I could go without smoking. I went five years in prison yeah. without smoking pot. Never bothered me. Never thought about it. Did you I ever see any weed when you were in the joint? How much was the joint cost you? Hundred dollars, two hundred. I only saw that at, at Saskatoon Correctional, the thinnest joint I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, it's not possible for me to even roll one like that. It was the size of a toothpick, like a wooden toothpick. It was. <laughs> It was done with unbelievable skill and an astonishingly small amount of cannabis. Um, like literally, literally one little flake connected to another little flake, one all, you know. And yet I smoked that with Emil, a big tall native Cree guy, uh, or Algonquin actually. And uh, I got so ripped because I'd, I'd, gone, I'd gone three weeks. And I was feeling good because not only had I smoked it with Emil, in the bathroom we blew the smoke up in the exhaust um but then i got my own cell that day i'd been in, i'd been bunking in a a six-man unit which is kind of smart because you make friends that way mm -hmm. um and then i got my own cell and then eventually i got put in the camp um, because they had a job they needed me to do and no one else could be trusted to do it. So I became the head janitor around all the women and guards and stuff like that because I could be trusted with potential weapons, potential chemicals, purses, money, uh, other prisoners. And also I had a good work ethic because they'd already mm -hmm. tested me on the outdoor maintenance. I used to look after the grounds too. Mm -hmm. So then they brought me in for that job and that paid the supreme price of $5 a day. <laughs> Wow. That was the top job. Though. So that was the only place I smoked pot. In the U.S., five years in the U.S., I would, I would tell you to leave me immediately if you said you had any drugs on you or any weed. And I would get guys coming on 420 on April 20th, coming up to me and saying, Mark, have you smoked with me? No, 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 no. Please go away. Right? Because those guys are all watched. And sure enough, I did three to four urine tests in my five years, and it was always on April 21st. <laughs> like clock right so yeah they'll, they'll figure maybe he'll break down right because they don't you know they might have read that one of the things we were established up here was the first 420 
So they're yeah. probably thinking this guy's it's real important to him. Yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not throwing my yeah. uh, a hot test in prison would be disaster. Oh yeah. wow. Like there's no hurt like being caught in a US federal facility uh with the wrong drugs in your system or worse in your possession. Yeah. Right? Because you're gonna get charged federally. Um, you're gonna lose any good time right away. You're going to spend a lot of time in solitary. You're going to get transferred. You won't be able to have a visit for a year. You're not going to be able to go to the commissary for three months. You won't be allowed any phone calls for three months. So, like, it, you'll literally be isolated. It'd be completely totally, fucked. Totally. So, yeah, all because yeah. you might have, like, you know, mm -hmm. if you had fentanyl or suboxone or any of those things, you got caught with any of it. Mm. If you get caught with it in your system, you're still in big trouble, but you don't get federal charges for being high. Mm -hmm. right the federal charges create quite a problem um if you're in possession of an illegal drug so if uh, guys might have meant well but i would I, it was quickly known do not approach me uh with any kind of drug i don't mind talking about cannabis and lots of guys would talk to me about it mm -hmm. but don't don't approach me with it don't offer it to me don't talk to me about it that you haven't <laughs> did you ever have any of the guys like the 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 that were on the other side the guards or the any of those guys come and see you later in life uh when you know you were back in canada well, there, um yes i have met canadian guards and police officers i've met you know i've, I've known some of the ones that arrested me <laughs> mm -hmm. right They're, they don't stay that way forever like what uh cash heat who was in charge of the drug squad when they chased me out of town in uh, in like 1998. Um, you know that guy became a marijuana cannabis consultant, right? So uh, you know things things change. The district attorney who originally swore out my uh, arrest and extradition, John McKay, wrote the legislation in Washington that legalized cannabis. <laughs> and wow. the mayor that chased me out of town, Philip Owen later became friends with me and uh, became a totally against any prohibitions, all prohibition. And yet he, he told the New York Times he was going to run me out of town and I'd be toast. So lots of people who, you know, wanted to get rid of me have, have now over time thought, mm, that was probably, those were bad ideas, all those prohibition ideas. So, um, but you know, I'm also on the other side too. Like I'm disappointed with a lot of the aspects of the legalization. I'm a little personally disappointed that I'm not allowed in it. Mm -hmm. um, Cause you know, I would love a little kind of shop on the corner selling weed kind of my way though. The government way is so not fun. I did that. I apprenticed out East at a legal chain for two months, you know, and I learned everything there was to learn, mm -hmm. but there's not that much to learn. That's the problem. It's all in a package. The, the producer whom you've got to trust uh, is theoretically testing it, putting his results on a package that you have to sell without any of the cannabis being visible or yeah. being able to smell it. Or I that. hate so, that. Yeah. 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 I think you know that deli, deli if, style if is the, the way to go. If the alternative is prohibition only, then okay, it's an improvement. No doubt about it. Uh, the, as I said before, the best thing that happened to Canada in legalization and, uh, you know, and I, I'll take as much credit as possible for this, along with the elected yeah. officials who made it happen. But we, in 2010, for that matter, 2000, when there was a liberal government, and 2010, there was 70 to 80,000 charges for cannabis, you know, in each of those years, a decade apart. Um, and now there's under 1,000, right? 
So that is a dramatic decline in civil rights violations. So that's no. good. You can't beat that. No. But cronies of government officials, cops, uh, became the industry leaders, right? Bruce Linton was once the chief fundraiser uh, for the Liberal Party. And, uh, you know, all these cops who were, you know, drug squad, in charge of the drug squad, of the, uh, the RCMP, our federal police, or the local today, you know, they all of a sudden, each one of them's got a cop on their board of directors, right? And, or a prime minister, a former John Turner was on one of the boards. Um, so, you know, they're recruiting all these leftover people and paying them an honorarium that put their name on a board of directors uh, about something they know nothing of, right? John Boehner in the United States is an American example too. Yeah. Right? Former of the House voted for prohibition every time. Yep. And then has, as he leaves Congress, he has an epiphany and now pot should be legal. And by the way, I'm working for $300,000 a year for a weed company. Yeah, yeah. I remember so that. So it goes, you know, but I used to say, uh, money is the lubricant of liberty, right? Once <laughs> in its perverse ways, right? You've got to spend money in areas that you think are worth, you know, preserving, saving, and or rescuing or creating. Yeah. Anyway, well, you, so we've, you know, we've got an imperfect legalization in Canada. Never give politicians and the bureaucrats that much power over a culture. You see, they think of cannabis as a commodity, and I thought of it as a culture where it's uh, supply and demand. It's a, it's an economic, uh, we're an economic group, but we're a cultural group and we're not, it's not just a commodity and the way they think about it is it's only a commodity. And that changes the nature of everything that goes on in, in the cannabis culture. If it's only to be a commodity. Well, I can personally, I want to thank you for everything that you did to get Canada to, to that door. Um, you know, I, I was there during some of that time to, to watch it with my own eyes. And, you know, it was, it was, it was invigorating, to be honest with you. I was excited. I thought it was fucking cool, man. It was, yep. you know, to be in those crowds and, and, you know, uh, we're here, we're high, get used to it. I still have that shit in my yeah. head, you know, so that's, uh, where is anyway. it you? You can't you can't do that now. Now it's so blasé. Um, like so what you know? Um, but yeah, but maybe that means we finally got the legitimacy as citizens entitled to protections and respect because uh, what we choose to be to do with our lifestyle shouldn't be a matter of criminal justice. Uh, how people respond to us is up to up to them, right? We they don't have to like us. Just don't jail us. Don't arrest us, right? But yeah. by all means, you're allowed to think we're like potheads that, you know, are you know demean society or something. You're right. Mm. I, I always like saying though to anybody like that. I said, would you like to delete from your music library all the music that would have been created under the influence of cannabis? <laughs> are you prepared? To, are you prepared to take your your distaste of cannabis that far, right? Because you better think about that. Because there's not much left, you know, maybe the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, but most jazz, blues, rock and roll, reggae, uh, R&B, hip hop, um, you know, are all informed by cannabis, right? And, uh, you know, including all the majors from the Stones to the Beatles, to Led Zeppelin, to Bob Marley, to, and so on and so on, to Kanye West, and uh, to right up to the current day. Uh, there are few that are 
weren't impacted by some use of cannabis. But there are some, right? Classical musicians, I can imagine a few that aren't cannabis lovers, but there's not much, right? So, and the same with art and film and television too. So we always have to think of that whenever we denigrate any aspect of society. They've probably been producers of things we enjoy. So we have to be careful about who we badmouth, right? Yeah, well, again, props to you, kind sir. And uh, I, I wish you all the success in the world with uh, uh, Cannabis Wonderland. And uh, I know that we're going to get an opportunity to speak with you again. Uh, there'll be probably something else that'll come up here soon. And we'll see you on another plank uh, yeah, talking yeah. about something else. Talking uh, to oh, yeah. your mind. Hey, where in, where in Portugal are you? In Lisbon? Right now, yeah, outside of Lisbon. I'm in uh, Cascais. It's like the Laguna Beach of Lisbon. Wow, sounds awesome. All right, man. It's gorgeous. Peace, brother. We'll see yep. you soon. Thank you again. Oh, hey, everyone. Welcome back. Wow. That was something else. Mark Every, the Prince of Pot. That was a great interview. All right. We are out of here. Oh, wait, wait. Dude, I'm a ghost. Whoa. That was trippy. I was a, I'm a ghost, dude. How weird is that? All right. Well, I guess that's it for our show for today. We'll see you next time on Wake and Bake with Captain Hooter. doing Santa? Oh, dude, we're going to be Santa Claus. I didn't even know this was here. How cool is this? Talk about a bonus. We're going to be Santa Claus. Whoa. Check it out. That is cool. What do we do? Oh, yeah, we need to drop some presents off of people, man. Helping those people out. That's cool. Oh, wow. Okay, so this is what I'm talking about when I tell you you find these amazing things that you didn't even know was here. This has been in the Oculus the whole time and I've never seen it. here pretty soon. I should be. I'm Santa. Dude, I'm gonna get so high at Christmas time and we're gonna have a 
blast this thing. Oh, here we go. Oh, check it out. I'm delivering, baby. Damn. Yes. Damn. Look at me. Oh, this is too cool. And we've got the full moon. Okay, listen, everyone. I could do this for hours, and it would be a blast. I will see you next week on Wake and Bake with Captain Hooter. Let me just... Uh-oh. Okay, it's better now. Oh, oh, oh. oh, yes, for the distant shot. Thank you. Okay, see you guys next week. It's Captain Hooter!